Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Imagine you have the ability to create any image that you want. I don't know, like an octopus in a top hat playing poker against Freud on a New Orleans paddle boat in the style of Picasso. Now, you don't have to be gifted or a practiced artist to do this. All you need to do is type in a description of that image using certain stylistic or artistic references. The more detail you put in, the more like your mind's eye the image becomes. Now, this is an example of the endless possibilities of generative AI. It's exciting, sure, but also the cause of a lot of concern over copyright for artists whose work is, in fact, being used to train this kind of software. Lawyer Matthew Butterick is co-counsel in two lawsuits against various AI companies on what will be landmark cases for AI and copyright. Matthew, welcome to you. Thank you. Nice to be here. There is some backlash against the cases that you've brought with some saying you're stopping progress. Are you against this type of generative AI? Let's start there. Uh, I'm certainly not against AI. I'm a, a longtime uh, designer and writer and, and programmer myself. I've even programmed AI software. Uh, and certainly none of our clients in these cases are anti-AI. All of them understand that you know, it's, part of, it's going to be part of our uh, technological world in the years to come. Uh, what they object to and what I object to is the fact that all of these AI companies are stepping forward and announcing that their big business strategy is to you know, misappropriate everybody's copyrighted works without consent, without credit, and without compensation. It would be one thing if they wanted to step forward with products that were made ethically and legally, but that's not what they've chosen so far. So let's go deeper here in terms of the sort of training the software requires. I don't think a lot of people realize that large language models have to get their language from somewhere. And that's often the work of copyrighted artists such as your clients. There are some licensing and regulations in place already for using this kind of data. So how are companies getting around it? How are AI companies sidestepping these, these um, measures? Well, as you indicated at the outset, we're involved in a number of uh, lawsuits. One of them is, is against uh, GitHub and Microsoft and OpenAI for a software coding tool called Copilot. Another one is against Stability and Midjourney for their image generators. And then we also have ones going against Meta and OpenAI for their language models. But in the first instance, all of these AI models are, are similar in the sense that they, as you uh, alluded to, they all have to start with a very large corpus of training data, right? Uh, in the case of a software tool, it's it's going to be open source software. In the case of these image generators, it's going to be artworks found on the internet. And in the case of the language models, it's going to be a lot of uh, parts of you know, texts and so forth. Uh, though what we find in all cases is that the quality of the, the model and its ab ability to generate works that people enjoy uh, has a lot to do with the quality of the data set. So what we find more and more is that these these companies really do like to get the, the good material in in their data sets at the outset. And you know again, they've they've scraped a, a lot of it from you know the, the internet, um, just massive amounts, you know, in the case of these image generators, hundreds of millions, billions of images. Um, again, they didn't uh, ask anybody for permission. They didn't license any of them. They didn't. Uh, they haven't shared a single uh, penny with with anybody. Think Tank founder Mike Masnick has said, "When we speak of 
training AI. We are in fact speaking about letting software read or otherwise consume works on behalf of the people developing it. This gets into the weeds of copyright law, which does not prevent reading. So are you arguing that it should prevent reading? No, I, well, and the fir- I think that it's it's a very misleading to say that uh, machines can can read the way humans do. Machines copy, and if I came to your house and copied a book from from your shelf and then took it home and read it, that would be at least under U.S. law copyright infringement as well. Um, I think the other big flaw in these uh, attempts to analogize between human learning and, and machine learning is that humans do violate copyright all the time. And indeed, uh, humans have to be taught early in their lives as whether, whether you do writing or whether you do artwork or music, how not to uh, violate copyright. And I, probably the example that's most familiar to all of us, I'm sure it's true of Australian students as well as American students, is you know, our, our teachers, as soon as we start doing these expository writing assignments, have to show us, here's what you're allowed to take from, from research works and here's what you're not. You know, the line between uh, using facts and, and uh, information versus plagiarism. So uh, it, it's just, you know, who's teaching the machines not to plagiarize? So it seems to me that plagiarization, copyright infringement is really the natural state. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, humans do have to endure a lot of effort to, uh, to, to, to break that habit. So uh, it's not clear what machines do to, uh, to, to do that. And, and again, the premise of these lawsuits is they haven't done anything. I mean, in the first instance, all of these works in the, in the data set are copied and ingested in their entirety by the these machine learning models. In recent years, Matthew, journalism, the industry around journalism has learnt the idea of fair dealing, particularly when so much of our world is digital and mediated and borrowed and um, pricied, which obviously a lot of media and journalism uh, must do. So therefore, the idea of fair dealing is, is, is fairly high in our minds. Tech companies are now using the sort of fair dealings argument for the software and programming that they create. What sort of legal standing does that argument have? Well, uh, yes, and, and what you call in uh, fair dealing in Australia, I believe in, in the United States is known as, as fair use, but it's kind of an equivalent idea from what I understand is that you know, there are circumstances in which we are going to say that something that would ordinarily be an illegal copyright infringement, we're going to not hold you accountable because it, it falls under the, the this this exception. Um, you know, there have been cases in recent history in the United States holding that certain kinds of uh, machine copying of copyrighted works can be fair use. But I think the very important difference with generative AIs, whereas a lot of these other works were making uh, sort of indexes or kind of collecting metadata, or in the case of a famous case having to do with Google Books Project, you know, the Google Books Project scanned a bunch of books, but they made an index that was meant to allow you to find the underlying books, right? It was almost like pointing back to the source works. These generative AI systems don't point back to anything. Uh, they indeed uh, deliberately conceal their training data sets, and they supplant them in the marketplace, right? They're holding these systems out as a, a means of, of making work so that you don't need to go to the artists and the writers and, and, and deal directly with them. So I think that's a very significant difference. Though more broadly, I'll just add, I, I, though I think that these uh, conversations are being framed in fair use at least in the United States, I think it has a lot more to do with power. Um, all the people who are running these big AI companies are very wealthy. And to my mind, it 
it's it's more about not like how do we make money, but you know how do we how do we get to do whatever we want? And uh, I don't think that these AI companies want copyright holders, people like me even, uh, having a veto over what they do in the future. So to a certain extent, whether it's fair use or not, they want to kind of break the spine of copyright law. So uh, that's another kind of dynamic that's afoot in all this. Matthew Butterick is my guest on RN Drive. We're talking about IP, copyright law, and the rise of AI. Matthew, copyright cases can be notoriously slow moving with technology moving at lightning speed. Is there a sense that time is on your side here or that time is on the side of the tech companies? You know, that's an interesting question. I've certainly, we're in federal court in the United States. All of our cases were brought in in the San Francisco district. And uh, we brought the first one about a year ago and and the most recent ones about six months ago. And they're all moving forward at different paces. They're all on a path to trial. So they they are going. You're right that, that, that the court system can be a slow way of doing things. So there's an interesting tension, right? On the one hand, there there are folks who would say, well, you know, AI is moving rapidly and it's being adopted rapidly and there's no way that judges are going to stop it. Um, we'll see. I think the other interesting thing that happens, though, is that the the research that continues to be done about these systems, uh, to my mind, can uh, kind of ever more reinforces the theory we have about them, which is that a lot of what they do is you know take in material in the training data set, in some sense compress it, in some sense store it within the model, and then on the output side, in some sense they are sort of remixing what they've learned from these uh, you know works in, into new things. So, you know, if if that's the case, it really is a very serious copyright problem. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, it's interesting, and the, and the court system is an interesting place to kind of conduct this investigation, which is really what it's all about. You know, we as lawyers, we're at, we're very pro tech, and we want this to be a scrupulously precise and uh, an honest accounting of of these systems. I think we disagree with the AI companies who say that, well, you know, we can't, but it's a black box. We can't open it up. It's just magic brain sauce. Don't ask too many questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think it's magic brain sauce. I think we can uh, we can interrogate these models and find out what they're up to. I want you to put aside your flair for being a plaintiff for one second and really talk about the kind of hard tack of the stakes here. Because, I mean, the worst case scenario for AI technology uh, companies is that they're forced to disable their AI software because the way that the software is built means they're unable to sort of unpick it. But then on the other hand, that would drastically limit the advantageous uh, advance of this technology and all of its sort of applied um, uses. So what is the sort of outcome that you're hoping from these lawsuits? What's the outcome that you think is, is, is likely and are they different? Well, I, you know, I can't say what's likely, but as I said at the outset, I, th- I think the big flaw right now in, in the strategy of, of these big AI and tech companies is that their business strategy is based on, you know, massive, what we consider copyright infringement, and that can't go on. You know, it's not our job to tell these companies how to fix their models, right? Uh, probably in some cases, they're going to find out that the model is not economical to make if they need to pay for their training data. But in some cases, it, it will be, and they just need to turn around and, and make a deal with the creators. It's not really different from what's happened at, you know, different moments in in technology, such as, you know, those of you who are <laughs> around 25 years ago and remember some of these uh, global... Uh, music sharing services like Grokster and LimeWire and Napster, all of them got sued out of existence because they were massive copyright infringement. But what uh, they cleared the way for 
services like Spotify and Apple iTunes and so forth to step forward and make deals with the you know, rights holders and so on so that these services would be legal and that everyone could have the benefits of that. So I kind of feel like that that's going to be the, the, the detente uh, in generative AI as well. And, you know, it kind of adds to your point about, well, it won't make, it'll make certain products uh, unavailable. Again, it's sort of hard to hear these, these uh, CEOs say, oh, we're going to make billions or trillions of dollars on this. And then they're like, oh, but, but there's no possible way we could afford to pay for training data. It's like, come on. I mean, it, it is the heart and soul of, of how these systems work. Is there any argument in your mind that by being included in the training data, then in some ways these artists will continue to be culturally relevant? And I'm not talking about financially uh, rewarded, but I'm talking about being uh, in included in software which will be foundational to it's almost like saying we don't want to be included in the encyclopedia britannica or wikipedia uh because obviously we want to be paid but then will that sort of limit the the effect or the impact or influence of some of these artists um i think that artists feel that under copyright it is it is their right to should be their right uh to to determine whether they are included or not um and as far as rejoinders to that i mean so in you know thing one some artists just don't want to be in the models at all they don't care if it's good exposure for them or whatever they just don't want to be a part of it they're happy for other people to use it but they don't want to be a part of it another problem like one of our uh plaintiffs in the case sarah anderson had her work appropriated by uh far right uh uh, forces, you know, in, in the United States who made parodies of her comics and posted them online. And those are all mixed up in the training data too. So there's in fact, you know, kind of these, these fakes of her work that she's now got to compete with. And the other problem is one, one of the issues with these foundation models is that they're, they're a snapshot of human culture at a certain time. So, and you're right, you're in the encyclopedia, but even the encyclopedia gets updated every, you know, year or two, right? You know, that we are looking at the possibility that these models actually uh, kind of solidify human culture because they kind of take the data that exists now and those just become the models. Because as you know, these models are, are expensive to train and, you know, maybe people just keep using them over and over. So uh, that would be a bummer too that they don't learn anything new and, and, and respond to things. Matthew, it's fantastic to get the chance to speak to you and to hear about some of the implications of these cases. We'll wait and see as they develop. Uh, Matthew Butterick has been my guest. Appreciate your time. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. Andy Park. 